Tom Woods Show, episode 1663. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're considering homeschooling, you know I recommend the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum for which I created 400 videos. It's an excellent education in all the standard subjects, plus personal finance for teens, how to be an effective public speaker, how to run a home business, the kinds of things nobody teaches, but they darn well should. Not to mention it's self-taught, so you get your sanity back as a parent. Make sure you join at my special link because only there do you get my $160 worth of free bonuses you can't get anywhere else. Check it out at ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Joe Jorgensen to the program today. Dr. Jorgensen is the Libertarian Party's presidential nominee for 2020, and she has rather a varied background. She's a senior lecturer in psychology at Clemson University. She holds a PhD in industrial-slash-organizational psychology from Clemson. But she also has many years of business experience, and she served as the Libertarian Party's vice presidential nominee with Harry Brown in 1996. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. I'm delighted to be talking to you. You're an extremely interesting person. And one of the interesting things about your getting the nomination, as somebody pointed out, is that there were a lot of uh, strong feelings, let's say, toward, toward or against certain candidates in the race. And there yep. were some people who would say, I'll never vote for so-and-so. So just like the never Trump people, there was never this one, never that one. But there was no never Jorgensen. <laughs> so how do you account for that? Being somebody who's been in the party so darn long, you'd think you'd have an army of opponents by now. And somehow that's not the case. You would think. I guess they think I'm a nicer person than I am. <laughs> but but truly, if, if you look at my record and you look, you know, first of all, look at my LP activist record. I went out there and I collected signatures. I went to Virginia and I went to Illinois. I mean, granted, I didn't spend weeks or months, but I went there and voluntarily helped collect signatures, didn't ask for any pay. I've worked at the state fair booth. I've handed out pamphlets downtown. I've done all the, you know, foot soldier work. I've, I've paid my dues. And then I was county chair and state vice chair. And then I held a position with the national, with the LNC. You know, so so that's basically the libertarian activist side. Now, if you look at the message, I was following the platform line by line by line. In fact, the Radical Caucus gave me a B, which is the highest rating that anybody had in the final six or seven of us in the last few weeks of the debates. And also, I offered a practical message that I thought would resonate with the American people. So what's there to not like about that? Yeah, right. Okay. Perfectly good answer. Let's talk about your background, first of all. Where are you from? And tell me how you first encountered libertarian ideas. There's not exactly an abundance of them in America, certainly not you know, several decades ago, let's say. Well, I could spend a couple hours talking about that, but I grew up in a little town north of Chicago called Grays Lake. Although fittingly, I was born in a town called Libertyville because Grays Lake was too small to have a hospital. And I think I just had a sense of justice growing up. I think Animal Farm, when I was in fifth grade, reading Animal Farm in fifth grade, had a big influence. And I've mentioned this story a couple of times where when I was in second grade and we were having a math bee, you know, similar to a spelling bee, only they asked us math questions. I was wearing this bright green dress like they had in the 1960s with big pockets. And I had my hands in my pocket 
And somebody, and after I made it to the final round, somebody, one of the students suggested to the teacher that perhaps I was cheating and counting on my fingers uh, because I had my hands in my pocket, which by the way, I was not. I never counted on my fingers. And so the teacher said, oh, you make a good point. Let's have a vote. And she actually put it up for a vote before all the second graders as to whether or not I was cheating. And that, and by the way, they convicted me of, of cheating, even though I wasn't doing it. And that just seemed so unfair. So the Libertarian Party had a saying that the definition of democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for breakfast. And I had experienced that in second grade, and that just really had an impact on me. How about that? Now, I, I'm interested in your, your field also because you're a university professor. So tell us about what you teach. And then now this may be a bit of a stretch, but I'm curious to know if in your professional field, you, you find any overlap between what you teach and libertarianism or how they could be mutually enriching, or maybe I'm going down a dead end there. Well, first of all, and I hate to correct you, but the academia world is very particular about this, even though I'm not. Uh, I am technically a senior lecturer instead of a professor. Now, let me quickly add, the students don't know any difference. between right. All they know is somebody standing in front of the classroom. Teaching <laughs> right. them. However, I do not do the research end. I do the teaching end, which I absolutely love. But I teach psychology. My PhD is in industrial organizational psychology, so it's more of a business degree. In fact, I have a master's of business administration. So it deals with things like teamwork, leadership, motivation, uh, hiring and firing. So the business aspect. But I teach mostly intro just because I love it. I teach to the large classes, like 250 students in an auditorium. And I also teach social psychology. So what I see my role is, is trying to keep psychology a science, which it is. Unfortunately, if you look at a lot of psychology textbooks, they've all gone towards social policy. And, and of course, social psychologists in particular, but psychologists in general tend to be very liberal. So I'm at least doing my part in finding a textbook that sticks to the science and not the politics. But I would like to add one quick thing. The social psychology textbook that I used, in the first edition, they had a great description of tragedy of the commons. And they gave the statistic in the textbook that, you know, after the Soviet Union couldn't feed itself, something like 3% of the farmland, which they allowed the people to own privately, you know, basically gardens in their backyard, 3% of the farmland produced about 30% of the food because you got rid of the tragedy of the commons. It was basically people had a profit motive. Now, of course, that statistic was deleted in the second edition and is no longer there in the third and the fourth. I think probably the uh, liberal professors complained about that, but I still continue to use that from the first edition. Now, in terms of how you would run a campaign, you know, obviously any question you're asked on the campaign trail, you know, by and large, you have to answer. But mm -hmm. candidates in general will tend to hone in on a few issues that they really hammer home, that they think will really resonate with the public. Do you have a few that you intend to focus on primarily? Yeah, and I'm glad you added by and large because I look at my job as that of promoting the party, promoting the platform, promoting the principles. And if they start taking me down some rabbit hole that I don't want to talk about, I'm going to tell them, look, this is not what the American voters are interested in. Here's what I'm here to talk about. 
So I think that sometimes libertarian candidates can just try to be too helpful and basically, hey, I'm here, ask me any question you want, and that's not going to be my attitude. So my top three issues are bring the troops home, you know, turn America into one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral, healthcare, because that is so important. It's literally a life or death topic. And because there's a huge myth out there, the misunderstanding that the American people have, that they think we have a free market system when we don't. And then third, the environment. And the reason I'm talking about the environment is because that's what they are interested in, and especially the young people. We need to bring young people into the party. They're excited about the environment. And usually presidential candidates or or any candidates, they, they rarely talk about the environment. But Again, I think we need to, in in order to sell our message, we need to talk about what they're excited about, but do it from a libertarian perspective instead of what we're excited about. I think the first of those is going to be an easier sell than ever because as we're seeing very dramatic events unfold, not just in Minneapolis, but around the country, and then combine that with the deprivation people have been suffering because of the lockdowns, whether democracy is flourishing in a former Soviet republic that no one can identify suddenly seems to be much lower on the priority list of almost everyone. Yeah. And just, unfortunately, 9-11, the pain from 9-11 seems to have left a lot of people, and people were so misinformed. We had the Bush Bushes telling us that, oh, Saudi Arabia loves us, and what they didn't explain was that the royal family of Saudi Arabia loved the royal family of our country, which was the Bushes, but if you look at the citizens, the citizens didn't love us. In fact, if you look at all the, um, you know, where the hijackers came from, but I remember talking to so many people, for instance, after we went out and were capturing other people in other countries that had nothing to do with the original hijacking, we're supposed to be going after bin Laden, and whenever we catch everybody else, people were mistakenly thinking that we had gotten the real person. And no, that's not who we were going after. So I just hope that it stays fresh enough in people's minds that they know that, that they realize that we are not as safe with being all over the world, being the world's policemen, as if we brought our troops home. Obviously, running in 2020 is going to be very different than if you'd got the nomination four years ago, or even when you were running as a vice president, uh, I guess, was that 1996? Yes. Okay, so obviously it's very different because in a lot of places, if not most places, you can't have large gatherings. You can't do the kinds of things you would normally do. So how do you plan to cope with that? Well, you're right. And one of the things that the Libertarian Party did to cope with that is to have the presidential nominations over this past weekend instead of in July when we meet in person, because there are a few states that it will be tough to get on the ballot and not having a name was a detriment. So what they did was they had the nominations online just so they could have a name to try to get ballot access. So what I will do personally is if I'm allowed to go out there, I will go to the states in which we have ballot access problems. I know that the states are busy um, Some of them are suing the government. They're trying to show that, hey, this isn't fair. We need signatures. But guess what? You're not allowing us out of the house to go get signatures. So we'll see if they're successful. And then, of course, we've got the national ballot access people that are supporting them. So we still have hopes that we can be on the ballot in all 50 states. I mentioned your 
running for uh, the vice presidential slot 24 years ago. That was alongside Harry Brown, who yep. has become somewhat legendary in our circles. I never got to meet him, but I've read some of his material. And he had a real knack for being able to take what for some people are very, I mean, look, there are very hard issues for people to hear. Like when you think about our opinions on a lot of things, they're very unorthodox. Most people have never heard them before. They could be quite shocking to people. And yet Harry Brown had this way of making them seem like the most simple common sense. You know, you'd walk away and say, wait a minute, what the heck did he just talk me into? He had this way about him <laughs> that he could do it. What was it like working with him? Oh, it was great. And it's his campaign that I'm fashioning mine after because you're absolutely right. If you look at Harry, he was a hardcore libertarian. He did not sell out or sacrifice the platform in any manner. And yet he was able to explain it in a practical way, in a common sense way. And I would say that that is one of the advantages that I have is that I am a teacher. I am used to taking abstract ideas and putting them into common sense answers. And that's one reason why people have noticed that I use a lot of stories, a lot of analogies. And I think that's a great way to have people say, well, that's right, that makes sense. But what was so great about Harry, in addition to his both principled and practical approach, was that he had gravitas. If you met him, you would think, okay, this guy could be president. He was very, you know, he just acted very dignified and cultured and did not treat the presidency as a joke at all. People could see this man speak and say, you know what, I can see this man as being president. And I'm trying really hard to attain that professionalism so that when people see me speak, they think, yes, she is dignified and she could be president. You know, one of the only I don't know, complaints or criticisms I've heard about you has been simply this. And I don't even know if you know what I'm going to say. How exciting. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> it's, it's, not that, it's not that she's inconsistent or we can't rely on her. She's the rock of Gibraltar on things that we care about. But she doesn't have this fiery disposition that maybe the, the times call for. And so I ran that critique by, I, I won't say the name because I haven't asked for permission, but let's just say a mutual friend of ours okay. who has been very involved in the LP for a long time, who came back and said, but you know, a fiery disposition does not always serve us well, does it? And, oh, okay, you know, I, mean, I can, you know, and, and by the way, uh, some people are persuaded one way and other people are persuaded others. Some people are persuaded by the person who just gives the, the calm, rational speech amidst other people giving I mean, compared to a Trump or a Biden speech, yeah, hearing a rational person is, a, is quite a relief. Uh, other people need to be grabbed by the collar and shaken. It depends on, on who the listener is. But what do you think about that? Because my, my concern is right now, I don't think that the problem that we're facing in the U.S. is that we have mostly well-meaning people, but on policy, they're like 8% wrong. And if we could just get in there and adjust it slightly and get slightly better people, we'd be in better shape. I think it's that the system is beyond hope, that the people in charge are not just simply wrong or they have our best interests at heart, but they've made a few calculational errors. I, I think the people who got us into the wars we're in, who are behind the warfare state and so much else, the monetary policy that gave us the 2008 crisis, I don't feel like these are just nice people who mean well and they just made some mistakes. I think they're terrible people and I would want to denounce them furiously. And I'm not saying that your, your view is that uh, they're wonderful people with a few foibles, but mm -hmm. this is the case, I think, for the fiery populist-style campaign, to say to the masses, 
the people you have been taught to place your trust in are not good people. They've done all kinds of terrible things to you and you're being terribly exploited and no one's going to tell it to you except me. Well, first of all, you said that these are not nice people. They're terrible people, uh, the people who have taken control. And I completely agree. So my question is, okay, do we need fire to convince them? Perhaps. But what's needed to convince the average American person? Because unfortunately, the average American person out there does not understand all of this. So this leads to my question, which is, was Harry Brown fiery? Excellent point. That and, and, guy was as non-fiery as could be, but the power of his words carried him. Exactly. And that's what I hope to do. Because I think if I get up there and I'm angry and I start yelling, then I think I'm going to appear to the American people just like all these other people who are angry at the core. So I think if I present a reasonable, rational approach, such as, you know, like Harry Brown did, that they would be more willing to listen to us, especially since we're the... I hate to say we're the newcomers. I mean, we are in that the political party's only been around for 40 years, as opposed to how long the Democrats and Republicans have. But if you look at the average American person, they've heard about the Democrats and Republicans since they were very young, and then they hear about the libertarians later on. So if they say, well, let's go check these people out, I'm not sure that seeing somebody losing her temper is going to win them over. I think a more reasonable, rational approach might be, you know what? That makes sense. Maybe I should look at them a little more. And also, I'd like to point out, because remember, my field is psychology. A lot of people think that they're at their most powerful when they're angry. Actually, they're at their weakest. People who are angry don't think as well. They don't make as good of decisions. They're too impulsive. They take too many risks. So usually in a situation, it's better to keep your wits about you. All right. I want to ask you a question about the Libertarian Party that I hope won't get you in trouble. I'll do that after this quick message. Folks, with everything going on right now, a lot of people are asking if it's even possible to buy life insurance at all. And the short answer is yes, you can buy life insurance even during a pandemic. And if you have loved ones, depending on your income, you probably should. As an insurance marketplace, Policy Genius is in contact with the life insurance companies on their platform every day. They're keeping track of all the changes in the market so you don't have to which means they can get you covered quickly and for the best price. Here's how it works. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies in one place. It takes just a few minutes to compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. And this doesn't just save a lot of legwork. You could save $1,500 or more a year if you use Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape for free. So if you hit any speed bumps during the application process, they'll be there to take care of everything. So if you're one of the many people looking to buy life insurance right now, but you're not sure where to start, head to policygenius.com. Policy Genius will find you the best rate and handle the process completely. They'll get you and your family protected and give you one less thing to worry about. Now, I'm afraid this question is going to cause you some problems. So let's see how, okay. how you can navigate it without that happening. You've been in the LP for a long time, and I'm curious to know your opinion of the party today, and are you happy with how it's evolved? What makes you happy? What makes you unhappy? Where would you like to see it go? Well, the, the one thing that makes me unhappy, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the people, which is, and by the way, I missed a couple of national conventions because I'd gone back to school. I went back to school to get my PhD when I was in my 40s. And so I flipped on the TV 
to watch the convention on C-SPAN thinking, oh, this is great. Let's see where the LP has gone. And in one way, it was gratifying to see all my old friends there in charge. But on the other hand, I was thinking, well, this is sad because not enough new people have been brought into the party. I'm not seeing a whole lot of new faces. So it's comforting to see people you know, but on the other hand, we're not going to get anywhere unless we grow. So I would say the unhappy part has nothing to do with the people who are there, but for the people who aren't there, the people who haven't been brought in. And I would like to point out that, uh, and you've probably heard this before, that Harry Brown and I, 95, 96, we doubled the party size. We had half a million votes, but we brought in 8,500 new members. And that's the largest growth that the party's ever had. Whereas the most recent election, only 7,500 new people were brought in. So part of my goal isn't just votes, although we need votes for ballot access, but it's to grow the party because we're not going to get anywhere unless we just become larger. But as far as the people who are in the party, I think it's great. And of course, I think they made a good decision choosing me. And the fact that somebody who got the Pragmatic Caucus endorsement, while on the other hand, getting a B from the Radical Caucus, I think that shows that we can put both ideas together and that we can be unified in that. Yeah, I I thought that was a a especially auspicious development, that that very point. Now, let's. I want to talk about how you decide on issues to focus on, because we talked mm-hmm. about that before. Mm-hmm. But I remember back in 2008, I have a notorious blog post in which I criticized Ron Paul for talking about the Federal Reserve. I mean, mm-hmm. what an idiot, right? How tone deaf <laughs> could you be? This turned out to be a hugely winning issue for him. But yeah. my view was nobody's talking about the Fed. I mean, even if they should be, nobody is. Nobody knows about it. Nobody cares. You have to go where the people are. And yet, instead, he led them to where he wanted them to be, which is highly unusual. Normally, you you see what the focus groups are telling you you should talk about, and then you go out and talk about that. But that doesn't always work. I mean, there are limits to right. that. I, I can't get people interested in, you know, in what's going on in Belarus. I, I just know <laughs> American is really that interested in that. But on the other hand, I, I do at times want to look at what are the people themselves talking about and I do, to some degree, have to cater to that so that they'll listen to me. And I can see that even as a podcast host. When this pandemic gained steam, I told my listening audience, given that I produce five episodes a week, I'm not going to do an episode on the virus every single day. Oh, I, you know, yes. No one would want that. But yet I look at my social media feed, and up until a few days ago with the police brutality, Everybody was talking about that 24 hours a day. So I had to modify things. Right. I, I do talk about that issue from different angles uh, several days a week because that's what the people want to hear. So my question to you is right now, apart from police brutality, which is very much at the center of the conversation, people are talking about lockdowns and mm-hmm. what this means for our prosperity and our future. And and there's a lot of uncertainty about it. So it seems like that's got to be an issue that we have to talk about whether, as a podcast host, whether I want to repeatedly talk about it or not. And likewise, in politics, I think we have to talk about it. Right. And I don't envy you at all because you're right. You've got one topic that's basically been in the forefront for months And how many different ways can you come up with that? You've got to be very creative to do that. But my message has been that this is the largest assault we've had on our personal freedoms that I've seen in my lifetime. And I've pointed out that we've got an attack from two fronts. First of all, our personal freedoms that were all under house arrest and we're not allowed to go out there, but also the economic freedoms that they are spending more money 
and they are spending it where the bureaucrats want it spent, not the individuals. And it's, you know, we're going to have to explain to people, yes, you got your $1,200 check, but you know what? It didn't come out of their bank accounts. They first had to get the money from us and then give it back to us. And wouldn't you rather spend the money yourself? But would you mind if I go back and address something that you said about Ron Paul? Please do. Well, let me ask you this. Would you mind a very short psychology lesson? This will be an exclusive because nobody else is asking me about this. But <laughs> I, would be, I would be delighted. Okay. And of course, I would never bring this up on CNN, but I'm going to put on my uh, teacher hat here. And you said about how the Fed ended up being such a winning case for Ron Paul. I actually used Ron Paul as an example in my class when I talked about something called the elaboration likelihood model. Don't worry about the name. Basically, there are two ways that you can persuade people. One way is to talk about the message, explain all the facts and figures and so forth. And the other way is through more of an emotional kind of slogan way. And for many years, I used as an example, I used Barack Obama as the non-message way. And I would ask the class, can anybody remember Obama's slogan? And everybody said, hope and change. And what was really funny was even after Obama ran the second time and it changed his message, the students were still saying hope and change. And then I would say, okay, well, you know, John McCain, Mitt Romney, you know, whatever year it was. Now, they're not the other way. And by the way, what was really funny in class is I would ask them, does anybody remember John McCain's slogan? And like even the year of the election, a class of 250 students, nobody knew it. (laughs) They had to Google it to look it up, which I thought was a little amusing. But I would say here is an example of what we call the central route, which is facts and figures. And that would be Ron Paul. And here's the the good part, good news and bad news about the central route. The good news is that it lasts longer. And what I would use as an example of how successful Ron Paul was is it was like eight years later. And I said, I still see Ron Paul bumper stickers. I don't see Mitt Romney bumper stickers or you know, the governor of Alabama. You know, I, I don't see you know, Huckabee. I don't see any of those stickers, but I still see Ron Paul bumper stickers. And after one of my lectures, would you believe I saw a Ron Paul bumper sticker on my way home from lecture, like an hour later? <laughs> this was like eight years after he had run. But here's the problem with that way, is in order to win people over, they have to be able to understand the message and they have to have the motivation to understand the message. But if you can find people who are willing to listen to you, who you know want to listen to you and understand you, then that message is going to stick around a lot longer than the hope and change. And all you have to do is look at all the Ron Paul bumper stickers. Oh, and let me mention, I always prefaced this talk by saying, okay, I'm not talking about who you should or shouldn't vote for or who, who is right or who is wrong. This is just a demonstration of the different techniques. That is very interesting indeed. And of course, the long-term legacy has been quite significant. You have a lot of young people who, under his uh, influence, read a lot of the classic works of economics that, yeah. that we as libertarians would like to see them read. And you know, for all the getting swept away and emotionally in presidential campaigns, these kids were actually swept away intellectually. Yeah. I mean, who the heck can get a typical 18-year-old American to read a 900-page economics book? You know, that's an achievement. That's more important than how many bills did he get passed because right. this now, is going to have a long-term effect. 
Exactly. And somehow he was able to motivate them to learn about it. Somehow they were motivated. But keep in mind the other half is that a lot of these were college students. So they had the intellectual ability to actually follow a very complicated economic process. And I don't know that the average American would have either the motivation or sometimes not even the ability to follow economics. A lot of people just get bored with economics. But for the people who you can convince, they are there for life. And what helped, of course, in this case was he didn't have to stand there and lecture to them. He could say a few words and then they can go search for it on a search engine and then do their own research. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, he he could have done hope and change, but he didn't. (laughs) No, no, he sure didn't. So let me ask you the classic question, see what your answer is to the classic question any libertarian candidate for any office needs to be asked, which is, why am I not wasting my vote by voting for you? You must be so tired of hearing this. How do you respond to that? My response is, do you want bigger government or smaller government? And if they say they want smaller government, then I say you're wasting your vote voting for bigger government because that's what you're going to get if you vote for the Democrats and Republicans. Why would you vote for something you don't want? That has got to be the biggest waste of all. I came to the conclusion some time ago that even though I know it's true that it's possible that one candidate or another could be somewhat better on things that matter to me, but then when push comes to shove, do they wind up really carrying through with what they promised? And that Mm -hmm. maybe by voting for a third party, so-called, I'm hurting myself by by maybe accidentally getting another person I don't even... I I finally just said, I'm sick and tired of calculating this way. I want to vote my conscience. I just want to vote for the person I think is best. What is wrong with that? It's a simple but yet morally unimpeachable approach. Vote for the person you think is best. Vote for the person who most reflects your philosophy. How can you be faulted for that? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And here's what I... Well, again, teaching psychology, I do understand this. A lot of people wait to see who everybody else is voting for because they want to vote for the winner. And it has to do with conformity and all of that normative influence. But I think libertarians were just kind of contrarian to begin with. To Let me say the original libertarians are very contrarian. What we have to do is we have to start bringing in people who are not contrarian. And that is just so foreign to us. But so many people want to be part of the crowd. They don't want to be very different. I'll never forget a news report back in 2008 showing that John McCain was really gaining steam. He was starting to, after doing very poorly, he fired a lot of people and he was starting to win primaries. And they were doing man-on-the-street interviews and they interviewed a voter who said, well, you know, he's not my first choice, but I guess this means I have to go out and vote for him. Exactly. Why would you think it means that? (laughs) It's because you want to be associated with a winner. And that's what people do. They want to be associated with a winner. Um, Let me mention, by the way, real quick, and I hope you don't mind that I'm going off topic with the psychology. I want you to know that if I were in a CNN interview, I would never go off topic and start talking about psychology. But I'm treating this as kind of behind baseball, you know. (laughs) Plus, plus you're talking to one of the world's biggest nerds. I couldn't be happier that you're doing this. Okay, so so I'm taking a little more leeway. I don't want you to become concerned that this is the message I'm going to spread. But since this is just, you know, we're just kind of talking behind the scenes. Yeah, there's something called basking in reflective glory. And uh, interesting study was done in which football teams after a major win, the students were more likely to wear their team colors on the following Monday than not. 
And it turns out that the reason that people, that students did that wasn't to show loyalty or to show support, but basically basking in reflected glory. People like to go with the winner. People don't like to be considered a loser. Let me close with uh, giving you an opportunity to address something that's come up. And I think it's fading away. I really do. I already think it's fading away. But it's the issue involving your running mate, Spike Cohen. And I'm not talking about the shirt issue, but people have tried to divide you guys or put a wedge between you guys by saying that the temperaments of the two of you are quite different and that he is not serious enough and he's going to undermine you in some way. Do you want to put that to rest? Oh, of course. And a lot of people don't know what goes on behind the scenes. For instance, uh, Spike is not as big of a partier as it might seem. And what a lot of people don't know about me is I'm married to a drummer who has hair longer than I have. So, you know, if maybe if people got to know who we really were, they would realize that we're not quite as different as we might seem. And I've heard uh, the both of you speak together. And Mm -hmm. I think you're very impressive sounding, both of you. So I think, and I've seen in the Facebook group, because I'm lurking in there sometimes, that people have started to say, well, now that I've heard him, He's very impressive and I feel a lot better. So fair yeah, enough. But- and, and here's what's ironic is if you look, and, and we did do a joint appearance last night on LPTV. And if you listen to us, what's ironic is I'm the supposed professor, right? And yet I'm not the one talking theory. I'm not the one using the word self-ownership. I'm the one out there talking common sense, average person kind of talk. Whereas he's the guy who's supposedly the, you know, the radical and, uh, you know, we're handing out free ponies and we're turning the presidency into a joke to get attention. And yet he's the one talking more theoretical. So it's almost like we're opposite of what people, you know, looking at us superficially, we're actually giving a message that is opposite to what we are superficially. Tell people the website and give us your 30-second elevator pitch for why they should support you financially and politically. It's joj2020.com. And they should support us because government is too big, too bossy, too intrusive. It often hurts the people it's supposed to help. The only way to get the message out there is through money. Unfortunately, the news is not going to treat us seriously unless we buy advertising because they say we're not a big enough campaign. So we have to go out there with force to show, again, Americans like voting for a winner. Americans need to feel like they are not the only one who is going to be voting libertarian. They need to feel like they are part of a movement and there are are a lot of people that they are joining. Well, the website joj2020.com, we'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1663, our show notes page for today. And Dr. Joe Jorgensen, thanks for your time and best of luck to you. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun going a little off topic. I appreciate it. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. Tomorrow, I welcome back to the show metal vocalist and rapper Eric July, and we're going to talk about what is going on around the country. So make sure and join the tens of thousands of libertarians who have made the Tom Woods Show an indispensable part of their daily routine. Head over to tomwoods.com slash apple to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. 
Check them out at podsworth.com.